0: As I've told you in the past, uh, when a holiday arrives, I sometimes struggle with what I should do as far as preaching goes. Should I continue the series that I'm in or break from that series in order to address whatever holiday it is on the calendar? And certainly with this one, by and large, what I decide to do on Mother's Day, I also have to do in another month when it comes to Father's Day, I have to be consistent. So this year I decided to compromise with myself and I'm gonna try to do both. I'm going to continue in our series on ancient encounters while at the same time tailoring it to Mother's Day. And so I went in search of an Old Testament encounter between God and a woman. I thought that would be appropriate for Mother's Day. That's more difficult to discover than you might first think. There are, of course, many women in the Old Testament, and some of them are certainly great examples and heroes There are women like Ruth and Esther, both of which have books of the Bible named after them. Uh, There is a a judge by the name of Deborah, who certainly uh, ruled over Israel for a period of time. But none of these women had what we would consider to be an encounter with God that would qualify them for this series. I thought of Rahab. But I really didn't want to get into her backstory on Mother's Day, though of course that story is a great story of redemption. And so I moved forward to the New Testament. I thought I'll take a New Testament individual. After all, that's still an ancient encounter from our perspective, and who better to talk about on Mother's Day than the mother of Jesus, Mary? She certainly had an encounter with God when the angels came to tell her of what was to transpire. However, I used that story just last fall in our first tier doctrines to talk about the virgin birth. So that ruled that out. So finally, I decided to go all the way back to where we began this series. You may remember our first sermon in this series was Abraham and God's faithfulness to Abraham concerning the promise that he had given him, the covenant that he had made with him. And so we're going all the way back there, only this time, we're not gonna look at Abraham per se. We are gonna look at his wife, Sarah. Sarah, no doubt, had heard about the promises from Abraham. He had had multiple encounters with God, and we assume that he had told Sarah about these encounters. But in our text this morning, Sarah is going to be part of the encounter with God, even if it is in an indirect manner. Now remember, This promise had been given, and now some 25 years have transpired. 25 years since the initial giving of the promise, and yet it is still not fulfilled. And of course, by now, both of them are well beyond the age of bearing children. And so in Genesis chapter 18, Sarah is included in this encounter. Now, given the close proximity, not just because one chapter follows another, but the time period from Genesis chapter 17, where Abraham has yet another encounter with God, whereby God reaffirms the promise. And then in chapter 18, where Sarah is included in the encounter, we are led to assume that Sarah is the the primary target here. She is the one who needed reassurance because all she's had up until this point is Abraham's word. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I simply mean she has not had a message from God herself. She has been told what her husband has told her and has believed that, and yet she's not had an encounter with God herself. And in this counter, there are some new details. For the first time, there is a time frame given. At this time next year, she and Abraham are told that the promise is going to be fulfilled. So today from Genesis chapter 18, we are looking at God's provision from the first 15 verses. Now, Aaron tried to help me a little bit this week when I told him I, was, I had chosen Sarah to be our topic of this ancient encounter. He said, why don't you use this as your title? Be careful when you laugh at God because you just might get pregnant. I said, well, that's a little long. It's a little lengthy. It doesn't match with the other titles in this series, so I'm just going to go with God's provision. It's not as catchy as Aaron's, but that's our title. Genesis 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes, And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the trees while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son." But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Well, our encounter begins with Abraham doing what many of us enjoy doing on a hot summer day, and that is he's found a shade tree, and he is relaxing underneath that tree. In fact, it's a group of trees, a grove of trees. This is actually the location where if you go back and Abraham and Lot had decided that they had become so prosperous that they needed to split up so that they would have enough land for all of their flocks. This is the area that Abraham chose by the Oaks of Mamre, which is about 19 miles outside of Jerusalem. But like so many of the encounters we've looked at, this day, he's just sitting there relaxing. This day dramatically changes when God's presence arrives. So our first point is simply God's presence. His first description is simply that three men have arrived. And at this point, it is likely that he does not know who these three men are. I realize that in verse 3, he calls them Lord, and Lord is capitalized in our English versions, but I don't think at that point he understood who he was talking to. The rest of this section, the first eight or nine verses, it's simply customary Middle Eastern hospitality. Abraham is doing what was common and even what was commanded in those days. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So while Abraham may not have known who these men were at the beginning of this encounter, it is clear that as the encounter transpires, he certainly does come to understand who they are. He comes to terms with who he's feeding and who he is conversing with. So who are these men? Well, two of them are angels. And we know that from the story that comes after this encounter after what we've read is the famous story of these two angels going down to Sodom and Gomorrah in order to destroy that city. In fact, if you go over to chapter 19 and verse one, it says the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So we know that two of these three are angels. They have taken human form, but they are angels nevertheless. The third man is of course, God himself what we call an Old Testament theophany. The word theophany simply means a manifestation, a visible manifestation of God. Again, we are confident in this identification because of the subsequent dialogue that takes place. God decides that he's going to tell Abraham what he's about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then there's that famous dialogue between Abraham and God, where Abraham is pleading on behalf of these cities, especially on behalf of the righteous individuals in these cities. And he says, well, what if you find 50 righteous men there? Will you destroy the city for 50 righteous? And then he goes on down from there. And so from that dialogue, we know that this is indeed God himself that is talking to Abraham with two angels. Now, this is a good place to remind us that this series is not designed for us to expect nor desire a similar encounter on our own. I am not encouraging you to seek out nor pray for your own theophany. Actually, we don't need that because we have the presence of God with us through the Holy Spirit at all times. Jesus promised his disciples and thus us He says, I'm going away from you, but I'm going to send you another helper, one like me. And that other helper is the Holy Spirit. So that promise has been fulfilled for us through the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells believers. And Jesus himself said on multiple occasions, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So while I realize that it is tempting to want a similar encounter of our own, i realize we sometimes want these supernatural encounters whereby god tells us directly to do something or god guides us in a certain direction or god comforts or encourages us i realize we might want those things but what i'm saying is we don't need them because we have something better we have the presence of god with us at all times so don't be jealous of these old testament encounters Don't look at these individuals and think to yourself, I wish I could have something like that. Because we are privy to far more information than they ever had. They were looking forward to promises that they didn't quite know how they were going to be fulfilled. We on this side of the cross know how those promises were fulfilled. And we can look back to historical fulfillment. So while we might want the presence of God in these supernatural ways, we have something better. We have the presence of God with us at all times. So secondly, let's move forward from God's presence to God's promise. Again, this is not the first time that we have looked at this promise, but there are new details, there is new dialogue, and there is, of course, new characters involved. And again, as far as we know, Sarah has not been part of this conversation until now, other than, no doubt, what her husband has told her along the way. But let's imagine it from her perspective, just for a few moments. She has endured all of the changes that Abraham has endured. God called Abraham to leave and go to a new place and Sarah followed. God told Abraham, even when they had no children, that they were gonna have children as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. But none of that has transpired. So is it possible that Sarah is coming to what she conceives to be the end of her life? and she is bitter. She is skeptical. All her dreams of celebrating Mother's Day dash because she's unable to bear children. Now, Scott mentioned it in his prayer a few moments ago, but it was the common belief then. It's still the biblical belief, but it's not the common belief much anymore. But it was the common belief then that it was God who opens and closes the womb. And as a result, if a woman was not able to bear children, She not only suffered the pain that she could not bear a child, but she suffered the shame in the community because there was the belief that God, for some purpose, was punishing them and not opening the womb so that they might have children. So then you may remember that Abraham and Sarah hatched a plot. If God has promised us something and has not yet delivered, maybe he needs a little help. And so they decide that they're going to help God fulfill his promise And so Sarah gives her servant Hagar to Abraham, and Abraham fathers a child by the name of Ishmael through Hagar. And yet that is not the fulfillment of the promise. And when we come to Genesis chapter 18, Ishmael is 13 years old. That's 13 years that he's been in the home. 13 years that Sarah sees him every day as a reminder that not only can she not have children, but as a reminder that the promise of God has not been fulfilled. Now, I'm not saying that she had hatred toward Ishmael. However, when Isaac is finally born, she pushes Hagar and Ishmael out of the home. But I am saying that his presence in the home had to be a mixed bag because it was a constant reminder of her own inability to bear children and a constant reminder that God had yet not fulfilled his promise. And yet that promise here is reiterated once again, this time for Sarah's sake, because clearly they make sure she is listening before they speak. Abraham, where is your wife? She is in the tent. And we know, of course, that she is eavesdropping in the tent. Now, frankly, I'm trying my best here not to make general comments about women and eavesdropping. (laughs) Frankly, I have no right to do that because I like to eavesdrop myself. I do it more than my wife does. There are plenty of times when we're out at a restaurant and I'll tell her to be quiet for a moment because I'm listening to the conversation at the next table. (laughs) And then I have to whisper to her what I've heard. Years ago, I was... At the Southern Baptist Convention in Orlando, the, the convention was over with. It was the next day. We'd stayed an extra day. So it was Thursday. And Tracy had gone shopping, leaving me to hang out at the pool all afternoon. And so I was eavesdropping at the pool. There was a group of women that were sitting in the, in the edge of the pool, and I was sitting on a chair uh, near them. And so I was listening to them. And it became clear to me that they were all the wives of pastors. They were all there for the Southern Baptist Convention as well. And so I was listening to their dialogue. Eventually, I quit listening. and I got involved in the conversation. And then one of them asked me what I did. And I had already ascertained that the one who had asked me that was the wife of David Platt. Now, you know who David Platt is. At the time, he was the pastor of a megachurch in Alabama. He left there and went on to become the president of the International Mission Board. He has left there since then, and he is now a pastor of a big church in Virginia. But at that point, he was a pastor of a large church in Alabama, and this was his wife. And so they asked me what I did for a living, and when I told them I was a pastor, David Platt's wife said, "'Do you have any advice that you could give for my husband?' And I laughed and said, I am quite confident that David Platt does not need my advice on any area of ministry. So sometimes we get caught eavesdropping and sometimes we don't. But Sarah is eavesdropping. She is listening in on a conversation like we do so oftentimes. And she is found out in that listening. And so she listens and she hears the promise reiterated. Sarah hears it for, for the first time with her own ears with the added note of a specific time being given. But she also realizes that this promise is absurd. This is ridiculous. There is no way that this promise can be fulfilled because she and Abraham are well beyond the age. The time for this has long since passed and there is nothing that can be done at this point. And so Sarah laughs to herself. She does not laugh out loud, it seems, immediately, but she laughs to herself. Now, we tend to believe that laughter is a good thing, right? Laughter is good medicine. We ought to laugh more because the more we laugh, the better physically and mentally we might be. And so we talk about the need to to laugh more in our lives. And generally speaking, laughter is associated with joy and happiness. But there are other forms of laughter as well. We used to watch a a show, a sitcom called That 70s Show. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'm not endorsing it, just admitting we used to watch it. But the show centers around a family by the name of Ed and Kitty Foreman and their son Eric. And Eric has a group of friends, and the show is really around that group of friends. But Red, the father, is known as a hard-nosed kind of father. I mean, he's just mean, he's angry all the time, he's just that kind of dad. And so one time he's mad at Eric yet again. And so he says to Eric, I want you to know that the fun times around here are over with. And Kitty, his wife, who's known for her laughter on the show, she starts laughing, but it's not the laughter of happiness or joy. It's the laughter of fear. I mean, she's scared by what that means. And Eric says to his dad, well, where was I for those years? So laughter's not always because we're happy. It's not always because we're filled with joy. Sometimes it's a laughter of fear. Sometimes it's a laughter of skepticism. Sometimes it's even hurtful to laugh when we laugh at the pain and the suffering of others. So what kind of laughter is this from Sarah? It is clearly the laughter of unbelief. It is akin to scoffing at such a ridiculous promise. And the Lord calls her out for this laughter of unbelief. And, of course, she compounds her her problems by denying it. She goes from laughter to lying because she doesn't want God to know what she has done. And isn't it often the case that we compound our sins by lying about them? I know we don't tend to think of unbelief as a sin. We think it's just sort of superficial. But it is indeed a sin. It is more than a, a moment of doubt. Deep down, especially in Sarah's life here, this is the laughter of, I can't trust God. This is the laughter of God is a liar because he gave us a promise and that promise has not been delivered. It's been 25 years and going on further. And there is no fulfillment to this promise and now it is past the time. This is the laughter of deep-seated skepticism as to whether God is a God who would fulfill his promise. It's also a good reminder for us that God knows our hearts. That's why it's expressly stated that she laughed to herself. This was not audible. And yet God calls her out for it because he knows what's in her heart. And he reiterates the truth that she had lied about it. We need to be reminded sometimes that nothing is hidden from the knowledge of God, neither what we do nor what we think. And while that might be scary when it comes to some hidden sin in our life, it is also a comfort and an encouragement to know that God knows. God knows your doubts. God knows your struggles. He knows the insecurities you have as a parent. He knows the the regret that you have as a parent. He knows the times when you're wrestling with what to do with your children or your grandchildren. He knows the pain that you bear, even though you've not told many other or if any people that pain. And because God knows all that we think and do, He can and does bring comfort and encouragement through those things. It's also a reminder that there's no need to lie to God. I mean, God already knows And so lying to him is just going to compound the situation. He is omniscient. That's the theological word for it, meaning that he is all-knowing. So it's okay to be truthful with God. It's okay to pour out your heart to God in prayer. It's okay to tell him what you're thinking because he already knows. And because he knows your pain and knows your struggles, he is there to help you along the way. Which leads to our final point. We've seen God's presence comes in the form of a theophany, God himself with two angels. We've seen God and heard God reiterate the promise to Abraham and specifically to Sarah. But thirdly, we see God's power from verse 14. Look at that verse once again. Genesis 18 and verse 14, where God says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? I called this from Sarah's perspective a moment ago, a ridiculous promise. But of course, we know it's not a ridiculous promise at all, because God is able to do anything and everything. There is no limit to his power. Now, on the one hand, we have no problem believing that theologically, and we can make that statement without batting an eye. God is not only omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing, but God is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. I mean, unless you want to do one of those silly philosophical arguments. You know, can God create a rock that's too big for him to lift? I mean, if you want to argue that nonsense, that's one thing. But otherwise, we have no problem believing that God is all powerful. But practically speaking, it's a whole other question. And by practically speaking, I mean personally speaking. You see, it's easy for me to say to Sarah... Sarah, God is all-powerful, and even though you are well beyond the age of bearing children, don't worry, God can do it, because I know the end of the story, so it's no stress on my faith at all, because I already know the ending. It's easy for me to say those things to you. It's easy for me to encourage you to, to have faith in God, that God can do anything, and God can change everything. But it's a whole nother matter when it's my circumstances, and when it's my pain and my problem, you see, when it's my circumstances that I long to see changed, doubt seems to creep in and crowd out our faith. Questions begin to linger about the power of God, or at least about the willingness of God. I mean, I know God has the power to help you. And I know theologically that God has the power to help me. But I'm wondering if God's willing. I'm wondering if God's really going to help me. These are the hard thoughts that we must wrestle with when we face situations in life like Sarah. When you want a child and you come to church on yet another Mother's Day without one, you're having trouble conceiving and everybody else is conceiving whenever they want to, but not you. Is God powerful powerful enough in those circumstances? Or when you have a wayward child, One that you've raised in the faith, but now they want nothing to do with it, either practically or theologically. They've denied it. And you see other children coming back to the Lord, but not yours. Or maybe it's your whole family dynamic. It's messed up, and everyone else has this idyllic family life, or at least that's what they pose online. And those are the pictures and the images you see. And so you think to yourself, why is God giving them all that, and he's not giving it to me? Now, to make sure we remain balanced, I need to say that believing that God can do anything is not to say that God will do everything. I'm not trying to give you a promise this morning that if you have enough faith, all of your troubles will disappear. I'm certainly not saying that you can take a promise that's never meant to you, like the promise of a child in your old age, a promise given to Abraham and Sarah, but not given to you, and you can apply it to yourself, and God will answer But I am saying that we need to walk by faith and not by sight. Believing that God can do anything that accords with his will. And then trusting that his will is what is best for us. Even when we don't understand his will, nor like it. And those promises that do apply to us, we can fully and completely believe that they will come to pass. Maybe not in our time. The promise to Abraham and Sarah didn't occur in their time. But God's promises will be fulfilled. Now, we know that the promise to her and Abraham was indeed fulfilled. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it this morning. But just so you know where to find it, turn to Genesis chapter 21, and I'll read the first three verses. Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. So everything that God said did indeed come to pass. God does have the power to defy even human logic. Now, as we've gone through this series, we have tried our best to move forward to the New Testament and see what the New Testament says about either the encounter that we're looking at or at least the individual that is involved in that encounter. You might be surprised to learn that Sarah is mentioned three times in the New Testament. One is found in 1 Peter, and that passage deals with the family dynamic, with the marriage relationship. And in that passage, Sarah is said to have obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. And so for the next 30 minutes, I want to flesh out what that means in your home for your wife to obey you and call you Lord. Or maybe on Mother's Day, I ought not to do that. So I'll move to the second instance where Sarah is mentioned. The second instance is found in Hebrews 11 that great passage of faith. There are only two women mentioned in Hebrews 11 by name, Sarah and Rahab. And of Sarah, it is said, she considered him faithful who had promised. So while we might give Sarah a bad rap, especially in the text we're looking at this morning, when she laughed at the promise of God, when she lied about that laughter, and we might say that Sarah is not a very good example Hebrews 11 says she believed in the promise of God and considered God faithful. And so what that tells me is Sarah is a lot like us. And that is there were times in those 25 years where she had faith. And there were times in those 25 years where she had doubts. There were times when she believed. There were times when she was skeptical. And that describes the faith of all of us. The third time Sarah is mentioned in the New Testament is in Romans chapter 9. In that great chapter, Paul begins that chapter by talking about how he has a great desire for the Jews, his fellow Jews, to be saved. But then he goes on to say, but if they're not, have the promises of God failed? And he concludes that no, indeed, they have not. Because it is not the descendants of Abraham by heritage that are the children of God. Instead, it is not the the promise of the flesh, but it is the promise of the spirit. That is those who by faith trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross are the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. So he's making the point that Gentiles are now included in the promise because it's not about, can I trace my line physically back to Abraham? But it is, do I have the faith That Abraham had in the promise of God. So on this Mother's Day, we have no doubt who our mother is, and mothers have no doubt who their children are. And we honor our mothers if they are still with us. But more importantly, I want you to know whether or not you are a true child of God. Some people say we're we're all children of God. That's not biblical. We're all created by God. But only those who have put their faith and trust in God the Father are actually children of God. You see, the Israelites thought that their heritage was enough. As long as they were a Jew and they could trace their lineage back to Abraham, then they were right with God. But Paul makes it clear that that's not it at all. Many in our own day believe something similar. You ask them if they know the Lord and they'll say, yes, I was raised in church as if being brought to church as a child is all that's necessary. Or they'll say, you know, my grandfather was a preacher. So what? That's not the lineage that gets you into heaven. You individually must place your faith and trust in what Christ has done for you to have salvation. And so it may sound strange to say on this Mother's Day, but I wanna ask you, you do you know who your father is? Not your physical father, but your spiritual one. Do you know God as Father through faith in His Son? That's the biggest question. Let me pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity we have to gather on this Your Lord's Day to sing praises to You and to study Your Word. We are reminded this morning that uh, we have so much in common with Sarah because there are times when we are full of faith and there are times when doubts Crowd out that faith. Help us to believe in your word and your promises. Help us to trust not only in what Christ has done for us, but trust in all that you've promised us, not only for this life, but the life to come. And help us to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.